When I started, I thought one man was in trouble and three were trying to help him. But after I found two pounds of tobacco, two pieces of brass, and a boat without a pilot heading straight out to sea, I knew they had all been in trouble. And all had taken the hard way out. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents... The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Hard Way Out. I had killed a shank of the afternoon in a Hollywood department store, trying for the fifth consecutive year to select something unique in a personalized Christmas card. A bright-eyed sales girl finally suggested in desperation a smoking 38, spelling out Noel in delicate wisps of white curling smoke. Well, I gave up, settled for a reissue of last year's unoriginal message. An hour later, I was driving out towards Sepulveda and my new client, August Quigg, and I was glad to be away from the pre-holiday crowds and back to work. When I pulled up in front of the factory building, a... An immodest sign told me the man I was to meet inside was president and co-founder of Quig and Slater, manufacturers of nothing but the best in construction materials. Come in, come in. Be with you in a minute. I'm on the phone. Listen, August Quig does not change his policy overnight, Slater. Not after 25 years. You should know that, you of all people. Never mind the excuses, Slater. Those you always have, and they make me sick. Partnership trouble, Mr. Quigg? Mm. Oh, no, my partner is dead now ten years. That was his son, Keith Slater. But he has nothing to say here. His father left it that way. Well, sit down, Mr. Marlowe, please. Slater is not what I want to talk to you about. All right, Mr. Quigg, who is the man and what's his problem? My general manager, Frank Emery. No? He has embezzled $60,000 of this company's money in the last year. Hmm. Then isn't this a great time for you to climb the nearest rooftop and scream copper? No. Because I want to save Frank Emery, not condemn him. Why? What's so special about a general manager who keeps dipping itchy fingers into the till? Mr. Marlowe, Frank Emery has worked for me for seven years. And in that time, he has climbed from shop worker to plant foreman to general manager. And that is something which took me 15 years. Which proves what? That Frank can one day go right to the top. Here, to my job. The honest way. And that is just the path he was on until a year ago when he got married. Oh, then he started to fill his pockets with company lettuce before he'd even gotten rid of the rice, is that it? Yes, but don't leap to any conclusions, Mr. Marlowe, because his wife, Sheila, is a very sweet woman. Everybody knows that. And if anything, she should be a good influence. Mm -hmm. Mr. Quigg, what's Frank Emery's salary? 175 a week. Oh. When did you last see him? This afternoon, about 2 o'clock. I called him in here, but I didn't say anything about the shortage. We just talked. I asked him if he thought he needed a vacation. He only sulked. He said he'd be all right in a little while. Then he left. But when he got back to his desk, he only stopped there long enough to pick up his hat. That was three hours ago. You've called his house since? Uh, twice, but I got no answer. Here's the number, Marlowe, and the address. Mm -hmm. Now we better stop talking, start moving. I must know what Frank Emery plans to do. Yeah, this is my private number. Oh. The plant will close in half an hour, but I'll be here working late. Okay. But before I get going, Mr. Quigg, one more question. Mm -hmm. Just so all this will make some sense to me. Were you ever in a jam like this yourself? 
A long time ago, maybe. And you know what it's like to be in Emory's shoes? <laughs> You're a pretty alert fellow, Mr. Marlowe. <laughs> I do seem to remember a rich man who once kept me out of a lot of trouble. But the details aren't very clear anymore, so good night and good luck. Mr. Frank Emery, please. I'm sorry, he's not in. Is this Philip Marlowe? Yeah, that's right. That should make you Sheila Emery, huh? Yes, I just finished speaking to August Quigg at the plant, Mr. Marlowe. He told me about you. And about Frank. Take it easy, Mrs. Emery. Crying isn't going to help Frank any. Yes, I know. But how can I help Frank? What can I do? I'm not sure. But look, can you meet me right away? I'm at the Golden Crown. It's a cocktail lounge on Santa Monica Boulevard near Bradley. Yes, of course, Mr. Marlowe. I'll be there as soon as possible. Exactly 34 minutes later, a two-tone sleek convertible about the size of a Pullman car glided to a stop in front of the Golden Crown. The loveliness behind the wheel was wearing a hundred-dollar hand-knit dress that just wouldn't let go. I knew it couldn't be Sheila Emery, but it was. She was a tall, luscious blonde with blue-gray eyes that were set wide apart in a face that any angel would have gladly traded his wings for. Now, five minutes later, we were seated inside at a quiet corner booth. But only two weeks ago, everything was perfect, Mr. Marlowe. Frank didn't seem to have a care in the world. Mm -hmm. Then all of a sudden, he changed. He became quiet, almost morose. You never suspected that he was stealing from Quinn? Of course not. And I still think there's some explanation, something we don't know about. Maybe. But from where I sit, it looks like you two have been keeping up with the Vanderbilts instead of the Joneses. It always danced the bank account. Just what do you mean by that, Mr. Marlowe? Exhibit A, that knit one pearl two number you're wearing. What? Exhibit B, that splash of automobile you drove up in. But Frank said we could afford those things. I know because I was worried when we bought the boat. Yeah, what boat? The Carefree. It's a 30-foot sailboat. We dock it near our cottage just beyond Santa Monica. Hey, wait a minute. A sailboat, a cottage at the beach, that car? Just how far do you think 175 bucks will stretch these days? What do you mean? Frank makes twice that, plus bonuses. Not unless he has a very fancy paper route on the side. Because 175, period, is the figure that Quig quoted to me an hour ago. Oh, no. No, I can't believe that. Frank wouldn't lie to me that way. Yeah, some guys do funny things when they're too much in love. Oh, now, look, tears take time, honey. How about holding him back long enough to give me some dope that'll put me on Frank's trail, huh? I mean names and numbers, his clubs, his friends, anything that'll give me a line. Yes, of course. But all that information is, is, in, is in his address book at home. All right. Home's our next stop. Uh, just between us, Sheila. What are the chances that Frank has an extracurricular interest on a back street somewhere? Another woman? Oh, no, I'm sure that's not the way things are. Frank loves me very much. Yeah. Yeah, I guess so. Believe me, if he doesn't, we're not looking for an embezzler. We're after a maniac. Come on, let's get out of here. When we left the Golden Crown, Sheila was still crying in a no shape to drive. So after parking my coupe in a nearby lot, we floated out to the Emory Place in Brentwood in a two-tone Nash. 
which did everything at the push of a button except dry a girl's tears. At her house, Sheila pulled herself together long enough to give me a handful of addresses that might possibly lead to Frank Emery. But just as I was about to leave, I, I noticed a single phone number scribbled in pencil on the edge of a desk blotter. It was Crenshaw 22131. And since Sheila couldn't explain it, I wrote it down on a slip of paper and filed it in my pocket and left. But once outside, I remembered that my car was still on Santa Monica Boulevard at the Golden Crown. So I started back to the house to call a cab. I stopped suddenly at the sound of somebody in the shadows alongside the house. When I moved toward the noise, a man darted out between two trees and I went after him. Get your hands off. Why? So we can play another round of hide and seek? No dice, brother. I'm getting too old for it. Now, who are you? What are you doing around the Emory place? Come on, let's have it. Say, wait a minute, aren't you? Aren't you Marlowe? The man August Quigg hired? That's right. But you still haven't answered my question. Oh, no, but I will now that I know who you are. I'm Keith Slater. Surely dear Quigg must have told you of me, the wastrel son of his late partner. He did, but you're still parrying, Slater. Why were you hiding behind those trees? Correction, Marlowe. I wasn't hiding. I was waiting for Frank Emery. All right. We won't argue terms. Why were you waiting? Because I want to get hold of Emery and help him before he goes too far. You see, Marlowe, he came back to the office after you left. What? Did he talk to Quigg? No, the place had just closed and the old man was out for dinner. Did you talk to Emery? Yes, and it wasn't much fun. That poor fellow's just about out of his mind, Marlowe. Mm. Well, he raved on for an hour and a half about how unfair Quigg was. Said he knew that I was the one who'd get to run Quigg and Slater after the old man died. I don't follow that. When did you become the fair-haired boy around there? Oh, I'm hardly that. But I do own a quarter of the plant unless, of course, Quigg fires me one day. Those are the terms of my father's will. But Quigg won't fire you, is that it? He wouldn't think of it. After all, that would keep my dear father from resting easy in his grave. Okay, okay, let's skip it. Exactly what did Frank Emery tell you, Slater? He said that August Quigg was a two-faced liar and that he'd settled with him in his own way. I told Quigg that when he got back from dinner. And I also reminded him that Frank had a key to the office. That didn't faze Quigg, did it? No, he said he never worries twice. If Emery walked in on him, he'd think about what to do about it then. I tell you, Marlowe, we've got to get hold of Frank Emery and stop him before it's too late. <laughs> In just a moment, back to the adventures of Philip Barlow. But first, just one hour from now, over most of these same CBS network stations, Eve Arden will be midway through her regular Sunday night role of Our Miss Brooks, America's most charming and most highly unusual school teacher. You've seen Eve Arden make her hilarious way through many a Hollywood movie. Now you can hear her every Sunday night as Our Miss Brooks, just a little later over most of these same CBS network stations. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of The Adventures of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Hard Way Out. It was nearly an hour later before I was back in my office on Cahuenga with my finger in the dial of the telephone checking the names and places that Sheila Emery had given me. Two nightclubs, three hotels, and five friends later, I'd run through the list without a single kosher lead. Sitting there thinking of all the places a guy could disappear to, I, I reached into my pocket for a lifesaver and found something else. A slip of paper that read Crenshaw 2, 2131. The number I'd seen on the desk blotter at Emery's place. 
So, with nothing more to lose than another millimeter off the tip of my index finger, I went back to dialing. Newton's what? Pipe and tobacco shop. What can I do for you? Not a thing, old timer. My mistake. Pipe and tobacco shop. Marlowe speaking. This is Sheila Emery, Marlowe. I think I know where Frank is. You do? Yes, at our cottage at the beach. It's closed up, but I was just going through some things in my desk when I discovered that the keys to the place were gone. And I clearly remember seeing them only yesterday. What's the exact location of that cottage? It's two miles north of Santa Monica and down on the beach, directly behind a large white frame house on the Pacific Coast Highway. Number 1221. You can't miss it. 1221. Okay, I'm leaving right now, and I'll call you as soon as I can, so try not to worry. Somehow or other, I made it straight out along Sunset to the beach and then north as far as the large white frame house without being tagged for low flying by any of the boys in blue. But when I got down to the cottage on the beach, I found it deserted and boarded up like opening night at an unlicensed peep show in Boston. Except for a couple of stray gulls who probably had insomnia, I was all alone. But the gregarious streak in me didn't suffer very long because a minute later, I had an unannounced visitor... It was a nasty caliber 45 automatic. And the man on the other end who gripped the handle like he knew what he was doing was none other than the general manager of Quiggin Slater, Mr. Frank Emery. Mind telling me who you are and what you want here? Well, a name which probably doesn't matter, Mr. Emery, is Philip Marlowe. But my business with you is something else. I'm working for your boss, August Quiggin. Believe it or not, he wants to help That's you. That's a lie, Marlowe. Nobody wants to help me, and you know that. This is a smart trick, but it won't work. It can't work. And I'll tell you why. When the police do get to me, Marlowe, they won't find anything but a corpse. Is that clear? Suicide. Don't be a fool. What about your wife? Marlowe, that's why I took the 60,000 bucks. So say your breath. And unless you're interested in joining me, do exactly as I say. Now, here. Pick up these keys and open that door. Go on. Now, throw the keys back gently. Please. Henry, listen to me. No. I've listened to too many people already. Now it's my turn to talk. Well, all I'm going to say is goodbye in my own way. You don't know what you're doing, Emery. Stop a minute. Think. This isn't the time to think, Marlowe. This is the time to act. Now, get in. Emery backed me into the cottage, stepped outside, and pulled the door shut. I waited a moment until I heard his car start. Then I tried the door and knew I was wasting my time. Emery had run a piece of pipe through the handle, and Gargantua himself couldn't have opened it from the inside. It took me ten minutes to kick enough boards off one of the windows to wiggle out and another five to get to a phone. When I told Sheila that her husband was on her way home in a very desperate frame of mind, she promised to hold him at all costs until I could get there. Twenty minutes later, I was in Sheila's house on Bundy Drive. Marlowe, what happened? Where's your husband? I don't know. He hasn't been here. Oh, fine. After you called me, I waited, but he didn't come back. Marlowe, what did you mean when you said Frank was desperate? I'm afraid Frank intends to kill himself. Kill himself? Oh, no, he can't. Now, we still may be able to stop him. When he left the beach house, he was heading someplace to say goodbye. I figured for sure that meant you, but wherever he was going, he didn't want to be followed. He locked me in and... The gun. Holy smoke, where's your phone? Right over there. Oh. Uh, well, what about a gun? Does Frank have one? Yeah, yeah, 45. Didn't come here to make his last goodbyes. That only leaves all this quick. Do you know what you're saying? Come on, come on, answer that phone. No answer on Quig's private wire. You're accusing Frank of murder. He hates Mr. Quig, yes, but I know he couldn't kill him. He couldn't. Now, you listen to me. Your husband's cornered, and he's decided to blast his way out of a hopeless situation. I'm going to Quig's office. 
If Frank comes back, try to keep him here. But don't try too hard, because it might be dangerous now, even for you. I drove down Sepulveda to the black, hulking plant of Quig and Slater, pulled over, parked, and walked up the alley toward the side entrance. Through a barred window, I saw the feeble nightlight that glowed in the outer office. Otherwise, the place was dark. When I got to the door, I stopped. A diamond-shaped key stuck out of the lock, and the heavy door was ajar. I eased it open and listened. Nothing. I pulled the key out of the lock and dropped it in my pocket. Then I went inside and switched on the lights. Oh, I found him on the floor next to the desk in his private office. He'd been shot in the chest point blank with a forty-five, which meant that even before he fell, August Quigg was dead. The room was untouched. Quigg's key case lay in the pencil tray on his desk. I snapped it open and saw what I expected. His diamond-shaped key. I switched off the lights and started out. When I heard heels clicking up the hallway, I backed up against the wall and waited. It was Keith Slater. He hesitated in the open door, a startled look on his face. Good Lord. Quick. Hello, Slater. Who is it? Marlowe. I wouldn't touch anything if I were you. The police will want to see it just as it is. Marlowe, he's been murdered. I had no idea Frank would go this far. Yeah, he's full of surprises tonight. Are you sure he's not carrying any grudges against you? Frank and I are old friends. That old man in there was different. He wasn't human. He was a machine, a rock crusher with a concrete heart. I'm only sorry it was Frank who did that to him because... He'll never be able to get away with it. He doesn't intend to. Plans to commit suicide any minute now. Tell me something straight, Slater. How does he feel about his wife? Is he jealous? Jealous? Why, I... Marlowe, you don't think that he might kill Sheila? I'm going to call her right away. Wait a minute. If Frank is there, a phone call would only hurry things. Come on, let's go. I don't like the looks of this, Marlowe. Neither do I. Sheila? Frank? Anybody home? They're not here. Neither one of them. Well, if they are, they're not talking. Oh, you've got a macabre sense of humor. Nobody's laughing, brother. Look, you check upstairs. I'll see what I can find down here. And for once, I hope it's nothing. I gave the ground floor a fast run-through. It was neat and tidy, from copper-potted ivy on the dining room wall to the sunbeam toastmaster on the breakfast tray. The only thing out of place was a bottle of scotch near the kitchen sink and lipstick on the glass beside it said Sheila. I was back in the living room before I found out why she had needed that bracer. Propped against a bowl of violets on the coffee table were two notes pinned together. The top one was for me, from Sheila. It said, Marlowe, I just found this note from Frank. I'm sure he means that he's going out in our boat the carefree. I've got to stop him, Sheila. I turned to Frank's note and was reading it as Slater came down the stairs. Nothing unusual upstairs, Milo. Did you... What's that? What have you found? Frank's suicide note. He asked Sheila to forgive him and forget him. Yeah, read it yourself. I'm going to call the police. Sure he means that he's going out in our boat to care for you. Say! What's wrong? I, I thought you were going to call the police. I was. But I noticed this phone number here on the desk blotter again. It's a tobacco dealer. Slater, I've got a very wacky idea. I'm going to give it a try. Hello? Newton Tobacco Shop? Yes, but we're closed. It's after midnight, you know. Yeah, I 
know. This is the police, Mr. Newton. We want some information. Police? What, 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 what did you want? Take it easy. Do you have a customer named Emery, Frank Emery? Yes. He was in late this afternoon. What'd he buy? Tobacco. A special blend I make up for him. I see. How much of it did he get? Oh, my. Let me think now. Two pounds. Yes, that's right. Two pounds. I'm sure of it. Man could lay quite a smoke screen with two pounds of tobacco, couldn't he? Mm. Thanks, Mr. Newton. You've been a big help. What's the matter, Slater? You look troubled. Are you thinking the same thing I am? I don't know what you're thinking, Milo. This. It's mighty weird for a guy who's planning suicide to go buy himself two pounds of tobacco a few hours before he blows his brains out. Put it succinctly, pal, I'm thinking that Frank Emery's suicide's a big, fat phony. This is Lieutenant Ibarra. Milo Ibarra. Catching you at this hour is the best break I've had all night. How so? What's up, Marlo? Guy's been murdered, and his killer, one Frank Emery, is getting away by boat. Can you sell the harbor patrol on running him down for me? It's his own, a sailboat called the Carefree. A 30-footer with an auxiliary motor. He'll be out of ways, off Topanga Canyon. Well, that can be arranged, but where will I find you? I'll need some particulars. I'm going to his beach place. It's in a little cove two miles above Santa Monica. There's a pier and a boathouse a couple of hundred yards beyond. Okay, Marlo, we'll find it. Now, listen, don't get your feet wet. Wait till we get there. The Emory Beach house was deserted and dark. So Slater and I went out to the boathouse, which was dark, too. That's where we found Sheila lying on the planks, sobbing out the end of a long, hard cry. Slater ran to her and lifted her to her feet. Oh, Sheila. Sheila, what happened? Where's Frank? Oh, please. I was too late. I saw him leave. He waved to me and called goodbye. I begged him to come back, but no, he never will. Don't be too sure of that, honey. What do you mean, Marlo? Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. That boat coming in is probably Ibarra. Here. Uh, who's this? Uh, Mrs. Emery, Mr. Slater, Lieutenant Ibarra. How do you do? Lieutenant? Well, Marlow, what's it all about? Well, an embezzler killed his boss, set up a strong case of suicide, and at the moment is pulling a very fast switch. You mean he's not really checking out? How do you figure? He bought two pounds of his favorite pipe tobacco today. What's that? Wait, Sheila. Well, that's interesting, Phil, but suicide's a peculiar people. Okay, but I'll bet you my sea scout insignia against a dead jellyfish that he's got a small boat aboard, and that he's going to get off the carefree and row to shore. How about it, Mrs. Emery? Is there a small boat? There's a rubber life raft in one of the locks. That'll do it. It's all he needs. Senator Barra. Yes, Mooney, what is it? We just got a call on the radio from the other boat. They've spotted the carefree running without light southwest about two and a half miles offshore. He's holding a steady course, but there's nobody at the wheel. Fact, seems to be abandoned. Well, tell him to stand by. Believe her alone. We'll be right out. Well, Marla, we'll know in a minute. Let's go, folks. Get aboard. Sliced through the black swells with the easy grace of a head waiter after a $10 tip. And all the way out, it looked as though Marlowe was going to be the bright boy of the evening. When we pulled alongside the carefree, made her fast and boarded her, it still looked that way. It looked great. Right up to the point when Ibarra peered through the porthole in the closed cabin, jerked the door open, and went inside. <laughs> after that, it didn't look so good. Marlowe, come in here. Is this Frank Emery? Yeah. Yeah, that's him, Ibarra. He's been shot over the heart from up close with a forty-five. Undoubtedly, the one he still has gripped in his hand there. Lieutenant Ibarra, is it Frank? Yeah, 
You better not come in, Mrs. Emery. Your husband has killed himself. I walked back to the stern and sat down. Ibarra was going through his grim routine inside, and I felt lousy. I stared down vacantly at my feet and only gradually became aware of the little brass cylinder that danced across the deck with every roll of the boat. I picked it up. It was an ejected cartridge from a forty-five. I had found an empty forty-five cartridge. All at once, things began to take shape for me. Ibarra! Ibarra, hold everything! I was right. Emery didn't commit suicide after all. Phil, the man's body's right here, the gun in his hand. I know, I know, but he was murdered. Now, look, I found this out on deck, and the door to this cabin was closed. Do you remember? When a man is shot with a forty-five, he drops. He doesn't walk in, close the door, and then fall. Well, that's... Did Emery have any keys on him? Yes, these are his. They're in the ignition by the wheel. Sure, sure. Look, look, this diamond-shaped one. It matches one I've got in my pocket. Come on out on deck, Ebar, and watch closely. Hey, Slater! Slater, can I see your key to the side door of the factory? Why, certainly, Milo. It's right here in my pocket. Uh, it's not in your pocket because it's here in my hand, Slater. You were so excited when you shot Quig, you ran off and left it sticking in the lock. No. And here's one for you, Mrs. Emery. While the carefree was still tied up at the dock, you stood right here, surprised your husband in the cabin door, and shot him. This little cartridge was ejected back to the stern. But you forgot about that, because after you shoved him inside and put the gun in his hand, you closed the door. Then you started the motor, locked the wheel, and cut the boat loose. I don't know what you're talking about. Look out, Ibarra, Ibarra, is that your gun? Ah, that was nice, Ibarra. Marlo, I wouldn't have believed this. Don't lose your place, because you'll have to go over it all again. Don't worry, I won't. You see, it's sort of like an equation. Two pounds of tobacco and two pieces of brass added up to two bodies and two murderers. Beats me that Mrs. Emery seemed to be nothing but sweet, soft, and stay-at-home nights. Yeah. And yet she pulled one of the richest double-crosses on record. Ibarra, she let her husband steal a fortune for her and even helped him plan a fake suicide to get away. <laughs> then she turned around and used this plan, only no fake this time, to kill him. So she'd be free to marry Slater. But she didn't want Slater without the money, right? Right. As long as August Quigg lived, Slater could never be sure of his income. So Slater killed him, and they hung that on Frank Emery, too. Mm-hmm. And they worked a fast routine of past the detective right through the middle of it all. <laughs> while Slater killed Quigg, I was with Sheila. Then Slater took me over while she killed Frank. They make a great team in a shell game, Wallow. Yeah. But you did all right. Well, see you tomorrow, the report, you know. Good night, Phil. I sat alone on the pier for a long time. I watched the waves come in, and gradually my mind got untangled in the treachery and violence it had been wrapped up in all night. And the lady turned out to be the tiger. And then as my thoughts plowed back through the whole mess of the afternoon when I'd been shopping for Christmas cards, I made up my mind to cancel my order and have an entirely new set printed up. They say it pays to advertise, and... If that's true, right across the top of my new cards in big block letters, I'm going to have the words, goodwill toward men. Who knows? Maybe it'll help. Anyway, I hope so.
Adventures of Philip Barlow, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in tonight's cast were Barbara Fuller, Louis Van Ruten, Bill Daly, and Edgar Barrier. Lieutenant Ibarra was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was conceived and conducted by Richard Arant. <laughs> Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... I walked into it smiling because it had all the corny elements. The weird doctor, the beautiful girl, the gloomy house on the windswept cliff, even the hulking menace. Only one thing was missing, the body. And that's when I stopped smiling because I turned out to be the corpse myself, almost. When it started a girl's wedding in New Year's Eve were only six hours away, and I didn't think the bride-to-be would make either one of them. But that was before I ran up against the slot machine operator, the escaped convict, and above all, the old acquaintance. From the pen of Raymond Chandler, outstanding author of crime fiction, comes his most famous character as CBS presents The Adventures of Philip Marlowe. And now, with Gerald Moore, starred as Philip Marlowe, we bring you tonight's exciting story, The Old Acquaintance. At six o'clock in the last evening of the year, I was sitting with my feet up on my office desk thinking of impossible New Year's resolutions and what the girl on my butcher's 1949 calendar would or would not be wearing. But at that pleasant point, there was a soft, almost apologetic knock on my office door. I said, come in and saw a quiet man in quiet clothes who extended a quiet hand. He introduced himself as Paul Riker, a Beverly Hills insurance broker. But the tremor in his voice said, very worried client, which on New Year's Eve was something I could do without. Uh, Mr. Marlowe, you've got to find Nancy Marshall for me. Just for a springboard, Mr. Riker, who is Nancy Marshall? Uh, she's my fiancée. We were to be married at my place in Beverly Hills tonight. On New Year's Eve? Yes, you see, it was at a New Year's Eve party a year ago that we met for the first time. Oh, when did you last hear from her? Uh, two hours ago. She called and said that she was in terrible trouble, that, that nobody, especially the police, could help her, that, well, that the wedding was off. I see. You're sure it's not just a matter of your being left at the altar, huh? Uh, another man. Oh, no, no, I, I'm certain that's not it. Now, please, Mr. Marlowe, will you help me? Uh, Mr. Riker, to you, New Year's Eve means wedding bells, but to me, it's something else, specifically a cozy little apartment on Wilshire Boulevard where there's a very nice girl and a couple of chilled bottles of sham... Oh, what is it, Mr. Marlowe? Shh, what, what's shh, wrong? somebody outside, Riker. Get away from that door. Oh, quick! Whoever threw those shots through the frosted glass in my office door wasn't interested in checking up on his marksmanship. Because by the time I got to my feet, he was taking the stairs to the street. When I got outside, I was just in time to see him pile into a pickup truck and roar off. And the best I could do was get a face full of exhaust fumes and the last three numbers on his license plate, which read 
7-1-1. When I got back to Riker in the glass on my office floor, I found the potential groom whiter, shakier, and less quiet than at our first meeting. Marlow, did you get him? Do you know who it was? No, I don't. Now relax a minute, Riker, and think. Yes. Who could possibly object to you and Nancy getting married? But, but that's just it. There's nobody I know of, Mr. Marlow, and I'm positive that the, the same is true of Nancy. All right, now tell me, where does Nancy live? In a villa at 1428 North Havenhurst Drive, number 12. Mm-hmm. But I, I've already been there, and she's gone. Were you inside? Uh, no, no, the door was locked. But, Mr. Marlow, I, I thought you had specific plans for this evening. I do. But from the way things stack up right now, they've got a better chance of keeping than Nancy Marshall. Now, look, go back to your place in Beverly Hills, stay away from frosted glass windows, and wait till you hear from me. We're real lucky, Mr. Riker. It still might turn out to be a happy new year. When Riker left the office, I called Lieutenant Ibarra at police headquarters. And after being told that it would take at least a half hour to get my kind of lead out of the 7-Eleven I had on the pickup truck's license, I headed for Nancy's villa on North Havenhurst, where it took me ten minutes to outsmart the catch on the back door. Inside, except for a carelessly overturned box of old snapshots, which meant nothing to me, and a lot of half-open drawers and closets, I was no place. And in the kitchen, where there was a full cup of cold coffee next to an open newspaper, the setup was almost the same. But not quite. Because on the front page of the paper, there was a banner story complete with pictures that shouted the news of three men who had broken out of the state penitentiary that morning. And one of them, a man named Steve Doyle, had a face that I'd seen only minutes ago on one of the snapshots in the overturned box. I grabbed the paper and started back to check with the snapshot once again for good measure. But the second I stepped into the living room, I stopped. Hello. I don't believe I know you. Oh, the voice matched the lady perfectly. She was tall, beautiful brunette, about 30. Wearing a beige metallic wool jersey that covered more curves than a ride on a roller coaster. But the large monogram day on her purse meant that this was not the woman who had planned to marry Paul Riker. I said I don't believe I know you. The name is Arthur Murray. You're late for your rumble lesson. Oh, never mind. The joke's bright, boy. It's a waste of your time and mine. All right, then we'll play it very straight. My name is Philip Marlowe. I'm a private detective, and I'm working for a very worried man. Now you, what's your connection with Nancy Marshall? I'm just, shall we say, an old acquaintance? That's all. Not enough. I'll prime the pump some more. I was hired to find Nancy, who seems to be in a lot of trouble. And coincidentally in trouble on the same day that Steve Doyle breaks out of stir. Now once more, exactly where do you fit in? I don't think I'll tell you, Mr. Marlowe. If you don't mind. Well, I owe... Pearl handled, huh? How very chic. But deadly. Now get in that closet there, Marlowe. Go on. All right, all right. But just so we don't go through this same routine when we meet again, and we will, who are you? You don't listen very carefully, Marlowe. I've already told you that I'm an old acquaintance. It's the season for them, remember? Now get in there and shut up. <laughs> Nancy Marshall's villa was post-war construction at its worst, closets included. So I didn't stay tucked away with the mothballs any longer than it takes to say old acquaintance. The minute I'd kicked my way out, I went right for the telephone and my only 100% bona fide lead, the number 711. This is Lieutenant Ibarra. Marlowe Ibarra, anything for me on that license number? Oh, yeah. If you're sure it was a pickup truck, the chances are pretty good that it either belongs to a party named Maurice J. Calder at 409 South Main 
For one Jerome Graff, 3221 and a half Melrose Avenue. Check. Uh, what's up, Phil? Anything I might be interested in? At the pens. Ever hear of a guy named Steve Doyle? One of that gang that broke out this morning? The very same. Matter of fact, he's probably driving that pickup truck right now. Oh. But look, he borrowed. I think I know what I'm doing, so how about letting me run this end of it until I get stuck? Well, There's a me... girl named Nancy Marshall mixed up in this, and a delay at this time might cost her her life. All right, I'll stay clear, Phil, for a while. Good. But just so you don't get too careless, remember, Doyle got out of jail this morning the hard way. He killed two guards. Oh, fine. Goodbye, Marlon. <laughs> I got the 409 South Main. I knew that my first choice had to be wrong because Maurice J. Cole had turned out to be a bankrupt junkman and his pickup truck, which was loaded with everything, including the kitchen sink, had three flat tires and hadn't moved in a week. So if the numerals 7-Eleven were going to live up to their reputation, Jerome Graff had to be my man. And that made the time to be careful now. Thirty-two twenty-one and a half Melrose was a tired cottage set back about 50 weed-covered feet from the sidewalk. And from the rusted sign, Jerry Graff, mechanic dangling at a crazy angle from a weather-beaten beam over the front door, I gathered that the place doubled as both Mr. Graff's living quarters and shop. I didn't see any truck out front, so I decided to try the alley in the rear before I knocked on any door. It was then that I noticed for the first time that I was being watched by a short man with a long face who was slouched against the nearby tree like a marionette with no strings attached. If you're lost, mister, maybe I can help you. Maybe. I was looking for a pickup truck. Seen one around? A pickup truck? Mm-hmm. Hmm. Now, I wonder what that could be. Well, it's a small deal, about a half a ton, and... Oh, I get it. Okay, here. Here's five. Now my question. Jerry Graff owns a pickup truck, but it ain't here. It's been out since dark. But Jerry's in. He's working late tonight. Working at what? Come on, you got your five talk. Okay. It ain't no secret. Jerry's a nursemaid for one-armed bandits. Slot machines, huh? Is that his record? Yeah. He used to be a big boy with them, too. But times have changed. Now he just works on them for other guys. What other guys? Oh, mister, I wouldn't answer that for even another five. I wouldn't stay in business very long if I did. But I'll tell you one thing for free in case you're going to visit, Jerry. What's that? Watch out for him. He's a very nasty man. Thanks, but I can take care of myself, Buster. What do you want? Information. Where's your pickup truck, Graf? Somebody stole it, but he didn't leave his card. Why, what are you, a private dick? That's right, but one that works close to the law. So why don't we call the boys in blue and tell them all about it? The cops? No, wait a minute. I don't like the law pattern around here. Come on in, I'll tell you what you want to know. Let's not skip any of the details, huh? Like, for example, the name Steve Doyle. Doyle? Uh, I don't know. Well, okay, fella, you win. The story goes something like this... Want to try again? Uh, maybe a monkey wrench will convince you. You don't throw any straight in your talk, Graff. Come on. What do you say? Do we play some more? Come on, talk. Come on. Come on. Wait on it. I'll talk. All right. I've had enough. Go so ahead. far, I know a girl named Nancy Marshall's in some kind of trouble because Steve Doyle broke out of the pen this morning. Now, you fell in the blanks. Oh, sure, sure. Why not? Oh, Steve Doyle, he used to be crazy about Nancy, but she didn't go for him. 
Then about a year ago, a little more maybe, Steve got picked up for knocking over a grocery store. He figured he was caught because Nancy tipped the law to get him out of her hair. Now he's out to get Nancy for revenge, is that yeah, it? Yeah, that's it. And anyone who's close to her gets the same treatment. Oh, Chummy. Now tell me, was Doyle here? Is he the one who's driving your pickup truck? Yeah, but it wasn't my idea. He shoved a gun in my face, said we were old friends, and asked for the keys. You know where he is now? No, but if I did, I'd keep it to myself. Doyle's full of hate, brother. You can count on that. Now, what do you say about clearing out of here? Just as soon as I find out one more thing. Now, there's another girl mixed up in this. She's a brunette with a lot of curves in the initial A. Calls herself an old acquaintance of Nancy's. Any idea who she no, is? No, not the slightest. You're a liar, Graf, and if I had time, I'd beat the truth well, out of you. No, you haven't, believe me, because if you don't hustle, mister, when you do catch up with Nancy Marshall, you're going to catch up with a corpse. Nothing more. When I got outside, two things stood out in my mind like a pair of cleats at Carnegie Hall. First, my client's fiancé was not the most innocent dame in greater Los Angeles. And second, I wasn't going to get any place until I could locate the old acquaintance. But then, just as I started for my car, the slouch who had sold me the dirty thumbnail sketch on Jerry Graff came running toward me. Hey, 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 mister. Did everything work out all right? I was called away on some other business, or I'd have been here waiting. Waiting for what? Well, you know... In my game, I now and again give a guy a little more dope than he bargained for, and in that case, I sometimes end up with a bonus, so to speak. Well, right now, we're about even. But if you can tell me anything about a beautiful brunette whose first name starts with an A, I'll give you a bonus that'll keep you in beer and pretzels from now until the 4th of July. A name that begins with an A? Yeah. Hey, she she visited with Graf this morning, maybe? Yeah, it's possible. Come on, think. Think hard. She's kind of tall, dresses like a million bucks. That's and... right. Now, what's her name? Here, look. $20 bill. Mm. Her name, what is it? It's, uh, uh... Yeah, yeah, I got it. Adrian Starr, 1312 Lookout Mountain Road. How do you know that? It was on the registration card in her car. I took a peek while she was... Trouble at Graf's. I'll take my 20. Goodbye. Beated up the walk to Graf's, and when I got inside, I found exactly what I expected. Doubled up on the floor in the middle of a lot of oily machine parts and still holding his stomach with both hands was Jerome Graf, a very dead man. I started for a telephone to call Lieutenant Ibarra, but then I noticed something small and gold lying a few feet away from the body. When I picked it up, I saw it was an ornamental buckle, the kind that a lady might wear on a coat. So I decided to skip Lieutenant Ibarra for the time being and call my client instead. Hello? This is Marlowe, Riker. Oh, yes, Marlowe. What is it? Uh, what have you found out? Quite a bit. But first, I've got to know one thing. Does Nancy Marshall have a gold belt buckle? A gold belt buckle? Yeah. Why, why yes, she does on her black coat. But well, what about it, Marlowe? What does it mean? I'm not sure, Mr. Riker. But it may mean that Nancy Marshall just killed a man. In just a moment, we will return to the second act of the adventures of Philip Marlowe. But first, by this time, a week from tonight, Jack Benny will have made his first broadcast exclusively on the CBS network. Starting next Sunday, you'll find Jack here with Mary Livingston, Phil Harris, Rochester, Dennis Day, Don Wilson, and all the others who have made the Jack Benny Show a regular Sunday evening delight for millions of Americans. Just for fun, 
the Jack Benny kind of fun, make a New Year's resolution to hear the Jack Benny show every Sunday starting a week from tonight, January 2nd, over these same CBS network stations. And now with our star, Gerald Moore, we return to the second act of Philip Marlowe and tonight's story, The Old Acquaintance. I told Paul Riker that the chances were good that his bride-to-be had just knocked off a slot machine operator. My client reacted like I'd kicked him in the stomach. When he caught his breath again, he started telling me I was wrong and didn't stop until I hung up on him. Next thing on the agenda was I called to Lieutenant Ibarra. Hello again, Lieutenant. Oh, did you find the owner of that pickup truck, Phil? Yeah, I found him, Ibarra. I'm calling from his shop now. I had a talk with a guy. It was Jerry Graff. What do you mean, was Jerry Graff? Well, somebody came in here and shot him just after I left. He's dead. Dead? He knew Steve Doyle all right, but I'm pretty sure Doyle didn't kill him, Ibarra. No? Then who did? Any idea, Marlowe? Well, looks very much like my client's fiancée, Nancy Marshall. Uh I still don't know where she is or how it all fits together, but look, I got a lead on an old acquaintance of Nancy's named Adrian Starr. She lives up on Lookout Mountain Road. Now, if you don't hear from me in, say, an hour, you might check. Number 1312, that's my next stop. Okay, just be sure it's not your last stop. Goodbye. I drove up Laurel Canyon to Lookout Mountain. The only sign of life was a young couple parked where they could look down at the city lights, if they wanted to. I backed into a bushy driveway across Madrian Star's bungalow and stopped. It was small, modern, and looked deserted except for one dim light upstairs. I was about to get out and verify that when a pair of headlights flashed down the road and a yellow convertible swept to a halt in front of the place. It was Adrian Starr who got out. She started up the walk toward her front door, stopped suddenly and then ran back to her car and drove off again. I kept the yellow convertible in sight. When it turned on Havenhurst and stopped in front of Nancy Marshall's villa, I pulled up in time to see Adrian step inside and close the door. So I followed her. What do you want? I want to know what Jerry Graff means to you, Adrian. I don't know any Jerry Graff, so it means nothing. Come on, stop it. You went down to his shop to see him this morning. I thought you might like to know that he's dead. Dead? Mm-hmm. The cops are hungry for anybody who so much as knew his name. Maybe I better come inside and talk it over, don't you think? Yeah, maybe you better. Just a minute. Thanks. Hey, it's dark. Why don't you turn on more lights? Because I like it this way. Okay. But, honey, if you've still got that pearl-handled popcorn of yours, let's leave it out of the conversation. And let's make it straight. Why'd you drop in on Graff this morning? Because I knew that sooner or later Steve Doyle would head there. I had to know if Steve intended to leave town or was still determined to get his crazy revenge. And all for Nancy Marshall, huh? You know, you're sticking your neck out quite a ways just for old time's sake, baby. Steve Doyle's a pretty tricky guy to mix with at this point. You can say that again, folks. Steve! Oh, Steve. Steve Doyle. That's right. Who are you, mister? Marlowe, private detective. Sit down over there, private detective. Keep your hands out of your pockets. I don't like you because you're half cop, but play it smart and you won't get hurt. Well, Adrian, like hold home week, huh? Oh, it's been a long time, Steve. Yeah, yeah, it sure has. Where is she, Adrian? Where's Nancy? Uh, I don't know, Steve. You're lying to me. This is her place. You got him with a key. You've been down to see Graf. You know where she is, all right. 
So tell me and tell me fast. Oh, please, please, listen, forget it. Forget about Nancy. This revenge will only get you in the gas chamber. Please, let's get away. We can still make it across the border. Please take me with you. I love you, Steve, just like I always have, even when you threw me over for Nancy. Shut up, shut up. <laughs> just tell me where Nancy is. Come on, Adrian. <laughs> Stop it, Doyle. Where is she? Steve, you're hurting me. Doyle, don't move, Marlowe. All right, fella, I told you to behave. I've been through a lot and I'm tired and I'm running out of time. You're getting in my hair and that's bad. No. Oh, no, Steve, oh. don't. I won't shoot him. I can't afford the noise. But I can give him something just as good. Oh. Now, Adrian, try again. Where's Nancy? I don't know, Steve. Come on, where is she? I don't know. Where's Nancy? I don't know. Where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? I couldn't remember where I was. How long I've been lying there, but gradually I got the crazy idea that I was being robbed by a very unhappy crook. Because I was sure that somebody was crying and going through my pockets at the same time. Oh, I tried to open my eyes. But all I could see was a little gold buckle danced back and forth in front of me. When it finally disappeared altogether, I rolled over and hauled myself up onto my knees. And then it all came rushing back to me. I'd been in Nancy Marshall's villa with Steve Doyle and Adrian Starr. Only they were gone now and I was alone. I heard a car start outside, so I got on my feet and made it along the wall to the door. It was Adrian, and she was behind the wheel of my coupe. Stay away from me, Marlowe. Where's Doyle? He took my car. He's gone off to Nancy. I've got to stop him, Marlowe, so get out of the way. Somehow I managed to jump back just in time to keep from getting a press job with the tread of my own fist tires. And it took ten minutes of steady concentration to get it through my throbbing head that Adrian had actually stolen my car and was gone. Oh, the cold air must have helped me because one thought led to another and I finally began to separate the facts from the fancies. I hadn't dreamed all I thought I had. And when I realized that, the whole idea hit me and hit me hard. I knew that I'd better get out to Lookout Mountain in a hurry. I made it to Sunset, hailed a cab and collapsed in it. Where to, mister? Look out, Mountain Road. Make it fast. Oh, it's rugged in this crap. Do you see, you know? Here's ten bucks. Does that help? It's important. Oh, it helps plenty. I know a great shortcut. Uh, a new road that's not yet finished. But how are you on bumps? Few more won't matter, pal. Let's go. When it was over, I felt like I'd crossed the country on a pogo stick. But the cab driver was a genius, and with a shortcut, we made the distance to Lookout Mountain in less than ten minutes. When we got near the place, I sent the cab back down the hill out of danger. Went the rest of the way on foot. As I got within sight of Adrian's bungalow, I saw Steve Doyle getting out of the yellow convertible. He ran up to the house, tried the door, it was locked. Nancy, where are you? I know you're in there, baby. I'm gonna find you about to take this joint apart. You've got some old business to settle, remember? So have we, Doyle. Uh, Drop that gun. Stand still. Okay, sucker. You won't need that gun anymore, Doyle. Just kick it over there out of the way. Someday I'll get you for this fella. I doubt it, Steve. You're all finished, but you're too thick-headed to see it. Well, I guess it's time to relax and wait for Adrian. And we call the cops, Adrian huh? Adrian just arrived, Marlowe. Don't what? turn around or I'll kill you. Adrian. There we are, Marlowe. Touch your gun back here to me. Come on now. 
better. Oh, Steve. Steve, are you hurt bad, darling? Can you make it to the car? I'll try it. Got me on this side. It's bad. Oh, Steve, hurry, darling, hurry. I'll be with you in a minute. I'll make it okay. Well, Marlo? Yeah. Okay, Adrian. Tell me one thing first, Marlo. Did Steve get to Nancy? No. You killed Graf in time to shut him up, too, huh? So Steve will never know the truth, will he, Adrian? Could be it was you who crossed him and sent him to prison. You'll never find out. Not now. And you'll never realize how much I love him, either. That's why I did it, Marlo. It was the only way I could hold him for myself. And I was willing to wait. Can you understand that? Yeah. I guess I can. Too bad a love like yours has to be wasted on a guy like Steve. You'll never get away, honey. Not with him. You'll never make it. Maybe not. But if he goes out, at least I'll be with him, Marlo. And that's the way I want it. Well, if you're going to do anything, Adrian, you better get it over with fast. That siren's a friend of mine. He's coming here. Adrian! Coming, Steve. You're a good guy, Marlo, and a smart one. Just don't follow us, that's all. So long, Marlo. Happy New Year. Just pull out of here. Who is in it? Steve Doyle and Adrian Starry, Barra. That road makes a horseshoe turn. That'll bring them out down below us there at that junction. I've got one of those streets blocked, but the other one's wide open. Lucky Barra, there they are. She's stopping at the crossroad. Yeah, they've spotted my men down there. She's turning around. They're heading out the other way. She must be crazy, Marlowe. They'll never make that curve at that speed. They're not slowing down, Ibarra. She's heading straight for that stone wall. Well, Speed, that's it. It's all over. They're both dead when the boys got to them. Killed instantly. By the way, how's your head feel now? Any better? I'm okay, Burr. You take care of Nancy Marshall all right? Yeah, she locked herself upstairs. Sent her home to Paul Reich on the squad car. Driver hurries, they can still be married on New Year's Eve. You had a peg to Jerry Graff's kill earlier tonight, Marla. What made you change your mind? Well, I found a gold buckle near Graff's body, Bar. I figured it was a fancy little belt buckle that Nancy had dropped. But I saw exactly the same buckle when I was coming to after Doyle hit me on the head. And it wasn't on a belt, it was on a shoe. Adrian's shoe. It was the mate of the one I'd found. Once you know Adrian Starr killed Graff, you put the rest of it together, is that it? Uh-huh. See, for a price, Graff helped Adrian double-cross Steve. She had to kill him to keep him from talking. She hid Nancy out for the same reason. If she knew that if Steve ever got to Nancy, he'd learn the truth. I wonder why she didn't kill Nancy, too. I think she intended to, Ibarra. And she did it all, really, because she loved that guy too much. Strange deal, Marlo, right to the end. You know, she didn't have a chance to make that curve down there the way she was driving. Not even if she wanted to make it, Ibarra. Yeah. Well, it's five minutes to midnight, Phil. Happy New Year, fella. I want to see a lot of you in 1949. Same to you, Lieutenant. Good night. After Ibarra and the others left, I stayed up on Lookout Mountain and watched the new year come to Los Angeles. A new year. Didn't seem to change things much, at least on the surface. 
Somewhere down the road, a gang struck up old Lang Syne. I thought again of Adrian Starr. A girl who loved not wisely. Who had called herself an old acquaintance. Yeah, I'd never forget her. As I walked back to my car, the city was ringing out the old and ringing in the new. And I wished then that someplace on everybody's list of resolutions, they'd make room for that cup of kindness they were singing about. And then a guy could say, Happy New Year, and mean it. Adventures of Philip Marlowe, created by Raymond Chandler, stars Gerald Moore, and is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald. Script is by Mel Dinelli, Robert Mitchell, and Gene Levitt. Featured in the cast were Gloria Blondell, Edgar Berrier, David Ellis, Lou Krugman, and Stan Waxman. Lieutenant Abarro was played by Jeff Corey. The special music was by Richard Arant. Be sure and be with us again next week when Philip Marlowe says... They all knew he was aboard the yacht when it exploded and sank. And everybody called his death an accident. Yeah, that is everybody except the corpse himself. He said it was murder. An hour of wonderful, delirious comedy is still to come to you tonight on CBS. You'll soon hear Hollywood's Eve Arden starring as the unusual schoolmistress, our Miss Brooks. Later, Lum and Abner will open the doors of the Jotham Down store in Pine Ridge, Arkansas, and let you stock up on the last from their never-failing supply of wisdom and good humor. Our Miss Brooks, starring Eve Arden, is heard at 9.30, and Lum and Abner at 10 o'clock, both Eastern Standard Time, over most of these same CBS network stations. This is Roy Rowan speaking for CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System.